In the emergency department, we deal with life and death every day. Why then is it necessary to teach emergency department physicians about dealing with death? You're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to a special segment focusing on cancer. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, your host, and with me today is Dr. Arthur Dursey, Professor of Bioethics and Emergency Medicine at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Dr. Dursey is also an attorney, and he is Director of Medical and Legal Affairs at the Medical College of Wisconsin. His publications and research have focused on emergency medicine, ethics, and informed consent. He's co-author of the Code of Ethics for the American College of Emergency Physicians, and that is a very big thing. We are discussing end-of-life issues, cancer, and teaching physicians to deal with patients that are here sometimes just to die. Welcome, Dr. Dursey. Thank you. All doctors deal with life and death. Why do you think emergency room physicians may not be prepared to deal with cancer? Well, in part because emergency physicians' training tends to be centered around two very important causes of death that are sometimes reversible. One is cardiac disease and cardiac arrest, where we have CPR, we have defibrillation, all the things that allow us to reverse cardiac disease and cardiac arrest. And secondly, we've been focused on trauma, which we've learned as well, if we are able to intervene in what's known as a golden hour, we can actually turn around someone who would have certainly died by resuscitation with fluid blood products, by rapid surgical intervention and stabilization. With cancer, we have not been as successful. That is, even though cancer treatments have been extremely promising and a huge change over the past 30 years in a number of diseases that people have, in general, when people come to the emergency department with cancer, they tend to be coming in with symptoms that we haven't been taught well how to control, or they come in at end of life when we're expecting death and death is expected, and we haven't, as an emergency physician population, really been well-trained in how to deal with patients whose death is expected and is impending. Are hospitals becoming increasingly concerned with this? Well, hospitals are definitely, and so is the medical profession because of the influence of the specialty of palliative care that is taking care of patients at the end of life. And it is now a new subspecialty that's been embraced by 10 professions, including surgery and medicine. And interestingly, emergency medicine now allows for a subspecialization in hospice and palliative care and hospice the philosophy and the place of treatment of patients in in end of life. So there has been a new push, a new introduction of the concepts of hospice and palliative care and pain relief in the emergency department. And even though we've always been treating people with pain, we've been much more concerned about prolonging life and saving life. But we have not been as concerned about quality of life and pain relief for those who are facing end of life. So what type of education are you providing to emergency room physicians or to any physician at the Medical College of Wisconsin? I'm part of a a larger group that is both educating all of the physicians in palliative care, including the ethical aspects of palliative care and the medical aspects, especially pain relief. And for emergency physicians, we are concentrating and promulgating concepts in palliative care especially. That is 
pain relief, and management of patients who are facing end-of-life who arrive in the emergency department. How satisfying has that been for you? Are doctors and house staff fairly receptive? Well, it's certainly very satisfying for me because of my interest in this area. And I think that emergency physicians are becoming more receptive. And the reason they're becoming more receptive is even though ERs are busy places and you really want to be able to take care of people with emergent problems, patients who have pain and are coming in and are either dying or close to death have always been a problem for emergency physicians and they've not really known how to deal with it. And that giving them the knowledge base and the tools for some simple evaluations and for some management strategies is something that actually takes a certain burden off their shoulders because on the one hand, they realize they don't have to be hospice physicians or pain specialists to be able to treat these folks. And at the same time, they understand now that they do have some responsibility to be able to address the various problems that these patients have. Are doctors themselves, and I've gotten different answers to this, prepared for the end of their life? How many of us who maybe don't even have a terminal diagnosis, healthcare surrogates and living wills, or is it something that you see our profession kind of running away from? Well, it's interesting because I think healthcare professionals in general don't have any higher use of advanced directives than the general population. That's not true for people who are in palliative care and in specialties in which they see death, and so they understand that they may need to address this as well. But I do think that physicians, even though they are cognizant of the issues of mortality and end of life, for a number of physicians, those issues are actually pushed away, and they're pushed away for this reason. For many physicians, in the old days, your country family doctor would deliver babies and attend deaths and really be involved in a range of problems. And for many physicians now, death occurs either in the emergency department or in hospice and palliative care or in the cancer ward, but definitely not in their office and definitely not for some procedurally oriented specialties. So the fact is that a lot of physicians, after their training, do not routinely encounter patients who are dying unless they are in a specialty that has those population of patients. So probably oncology, hospice care, maybe even neurosurgery. Absolutely. And, you know, trauma surgery and an internist who has a a wide range of practice. But especially with the advent of hospitalists, in the old days, internists would admit their patients to the hospital and their sickest patients would be there and they would then be attending them in the hospital. And now those patients are being cared for by hospitalists who definitely do see death and dying, but less so for the general internist and certainly for the general pediatrician. For those of you who are just tuning in, you're listening to a special segment focusing on cancer on ReachMD Radio, XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, and I'm speaking with Dr. Arthur Dursey, with whom we are discussing the end-of-life issues dealing with cancer in the emergency department. So tell me about teaching medical ethics. Can you teach it? Does the very act of teaching ethics change the student? I think the argument has been made, look, doctors are either ethical people or they're not, and teaching medical ethics is is not going to change anything. And I think there's a kernel of truth to that because I think you do have to have 
honest, accountable, good people to be able to practice medicine. And, you know, we hope to have that as a student and, and to continue that as a, as a physician. But at the same time, medical ethics, it's not the kind of ethics that you've learned at Sunday school or, you know, from your parents or from your peers, because it deals with plenty of ethical issues where you go, you know, I'm not sure when one should stop life-sustaining medical treatment, and there's not really anything that I've learned so far that tells us about this because we have this great technology and it can be applied, but when should it be applied? When should it be not applied? Those are things in, in which I think that you do have to have a knowledge both about the technology, about the importance of patient values and the patient's choices, the importance of a physician recommendation about that, all things that go into medical ethics that, quite frankly, are teachable. And there are some things that students can learn that they wouldn't have you know, normally learned. So I do think that there are some things about medical ethics that you can teach. And I do think in the process, for example, we have students who are literally one and a half years after graduating from college. And, you know, they've seen things on the television shows and kind of know what some of the issues are. And yet, they haven't had their minds made up about what ought to happen under certain circumstances. They don't understand the situations completely or even in depth. And so there is something that can be taught. That having been said, again, there's nothing that can replace someone being respectful, being honest, being accountable, and being altruistic. That is, wanting to help patients, wanting to make sure that they get better. And those ethical values are ones that are, I think, ingrained that you want to be able to both preserve and develop and then add the complexities of the issues in your teaching. How do you teach a young doctor, say, as you said, a year or something post-college, and he's given his assignment in the emergency room and he's to go in and the person is there, say, with pain and end-stage cancer? How do you teach them to approach them if they don't have an approach, if their fear overrides any feelings of respect because basically they're just scared and they're young? How do you, how do you teach them to approach a terminal patient? Well, one thing that we do is we do more supervision than we did when you and I trained because I think it was felt that in the old days, the best way to learn was to see one. Yeah, I was just throwing the chart and told to go in the room and be quick. And then to go and do it and then come back here and, and then soon you'll be able to teach this. And I, I think that that certainly is a way to gain lots of experience. But the problem is you learn by doing and you actually haven't been taught how to do before you do it. So one thing that we've done is, is that we have spent much more time training students. And in fact, we have something called an OSCE, which is an objective structured clinical encounter where we have our instructors play patients and our students come in and, for instance, disclosing bad news to a patient. The patient actually is the physician or is the trainer and the student plays the doctor giving the bad news. And we actually have them play it through. We have an observer. We have specific things that we'd like them to do, which is to be, first of all, to introduce themselves. Secondly, to sit down. Third, to ask the patient what they know. Fourth, to be able to let them know that they're going to hear bad news. Fifth, then to give the bad news. Six, allow some time for absorption. And seven, ask for the patient's understanding and if they'd like other people to be informed and what kind of things that they need. And then to actually do that with us before they ever go into a patient's room to give bad news. Now, a number of students say to us, well, that's just 
play acting. I mean, that's not real. Why are we going to do this? I mean, it seems so fake. And I say, well, so also is practicing resuscitation on resusciani. But we don't let you go out and begin your first resuscitation without having gone through our CPR course and our ACLS course with resusciani, who's the mannequin, to do this, in which we play that out so you can make your mistakes there and practice. And that's why we practice this. Now, in the situation of going into the emergency department, we actually don't have a specific OSCE for that, but we do encourage our students to go ahead and ask. And if you are frightened or there's a situation that you're not sure of, don't be afraid to ask for help because in the old days, I think the feeling was, well, you need to just buck up and learn to do it and get in there. And, you know, if something goes wrong, well, you've learned a lesson. And now we actually don't allow a student to first encounter a patient without a preceptor, a facilitator, a faculty member there. Tell us about this new specialty that combines emergency department medicine and terminal care. I'm interested in that. Well, it's a subspecialization. It's hospice and palliative care, and it's actually been a concentration area for a lot of physicians, but now 10 specialties, including emergency medicine, have embraced that. So first of all, you go through an emergency medicine residency and become board certified in emergency medicine, and then you may become subspecialized, and some emergency physicians become toxicologists. Others are in pediatric emergency medicine. Well, the new subspecialty is hospice and palliative medicine, and what that does is it allows an emergency physician to specialize in the treatment of patients in end-of-life, both to be able to take care of their emergency department patients better. And we do know that the population is getting older and and more are facing end-of-life. And secondly, it allows those physicians to treat patients if they wish separately on a hospice program or in a palliative care service, but also to be able to take care of the teaching of other physicians about the proper treatment of patients who are facing end of life. What is your take-home message or messages to our, our listeners today, keeping in mind we have primary care people listening as well as subspecialty? For emergency physicians, but also for everyone who is taking care of a patient that says, we're going to send this person to the emergency department, emergency physicians should and are becoming more aware of the issues in end-of-life care, the fact that there are complex medical ethical and administrative issues with patients who are facing end of life. And number one, emergency physicians are learning more and are better able to deal with these. And secondly, for the people who are sending their patients to the emergency department, you should know that you can expect that an emergency physician should be asking questions. You should, when you send a patient, for instance, who may have a terminal diagnosis, you should expect that that emergency physician should have a conversation with you or you should have a conversation with him or her. Thank you, Dr. Jersey, for being my guest. Thank you, Dr. Johnson. We've been discussing dealing with cancer and end-of-life issues in the emergency department. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson. You've been listening to a special segment focusing on cancer on ReachMD Radio, XM160, the channel for medical professionals. And thank you, as always, for listening.